Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are beginning a new sermon series this morning, a series in the book of Acts. If you worship with us regularly, you know that just last Sunday we completed a series of sermons from the book of Hebrews, a series that took us about a year and a half. So you can figure out about how long it's going to take us to get through Acts. I'll just kind of leave that ball in your court. But because we finished the book of Acts this morning, we begin a new series in a new book of God's holy word. And we do that because it's simply what we do. It is our habit here at Trinity to preach consecutively through whole books of the Bible, to to preach through them verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. Paragraph. There are occasions when we will take up a topic for a Sunday or two or, or three, but for the most part, we prefer to work through books of the Bible verse by verse. And we prefer that approach for a number of reasons, but this morning I just want to remind you of two. Why do we do this? Why do we just go from one book to the next? We preach through books of God's holy word, verse by verse, first because it helps us to hear God's voice in context. We live in a day and an age when sound bites are all the rage, when, when people will, will take a snippet here or a snippet there, and depending on whether they are for or against you, will uh, entirely determine how they spin that sound bite. It is, it is easy to take isolated words and make them mean what you want them to mean. We don't want to do that with God's Word. We don't want to use God's Word to to advance our own agenda or to propagate our own wisdom. We want to hear God speak. And to hear God speak, we must hear what He says in context. And so, when we come to a text, we we come to it in the flow of the author's fault. We don't come to it in a vacuum, but we, we come to it in the course of the conversation. And this helps us to hear what the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, intended to say, rather than than reading our own expectations and agenda into the text. And so, first, we, we hear in context. That's the reason that we do this, preaching through books, verse by verse. But secondly, we, we also come to, to books this way because it allows us to hear God's Word in its fullness. There are, of course, certain texts that preachers love to preach. There are certain texts that preachers come back to again and again, and I'm no different. I have those texts that I I come back to again and again. They're the ones I quote and allude to most often in my sermons. But if you're preaching through a book, verse by verse, if you're just working your way through a letter or through a gospel or, or through the book of Acts, then you are forced to deal with those texts that you might not otherwise choose. Those ones that don't naturally lend themselves to preaching. And so when we preach through books, verse by verse by verse, it it helps us to listen to the whole counsel of God. It helps us to, to hear not only those verses that really resonate with our souls, but those verses that challenge us and those, those verses that reveal to us new things that we need to hear. And so again, for these two reasons, that we might hear God's Word in context and that we might hear it in its fullness, we think it best to to make it our habit 
to preach through God's word, verse by verse, to preach through books consecutively. And so that's what we begin this morning. We, we begin a new series this morning, this time in the book of Acts. And so if you haven't already, turn there with me. Acts chapter 1. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, although you won't be surprised to know we're really only going to focus on the first verse. But before we do that, let's pray and ask God for his blessing upon our time in his word this morning. Father, as we come before you, we ask humbly that by your Spirit you would lead us into truth and that you would sanctify us by that truth, that we might bring forth its fruit to the praise of your glory. Father, do your work by your word here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is the very word of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That is the reading of God's word. The first thing that Luke does as he begins this book is remind us that there was a first book. Look again what he says. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, in the, the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The clear implication of that statement is that Acts is a sequel. It is a, a continuation of the first book. It is the, the second volume in a, in a two-part series. The first book, of course, being Luke's Gospel, what we call the Gospel of Luke. And so when we come to this book, we, we come to a story that is already in progress. And that has significant implications for how we are going to read this book. And this morning, I really want us to focus on two of those implications. First, I want us to recognize that because Luke's book here, this, this book of Acts, this, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, because this book is a sequel, because it is a continuation of the gospel, it, it tells us that it's going to be the same kind of book that the gospel was. When you have a, a two-part series, the, the second book tends to be of the same kind. It tends to be of the, the same genre. And so Acts is the same kind of book that the gospel was. And not only is it the same kind of book, but it's also going to have the same focus. It is, it is a continuing story. And I want to suggest to you that, that seeing these connections between the book of Acts and, and the book of Luke is going to help us to understand this book as Luke intends us to read it. We, we need to understand what kind of book this is, and we need to, to understand what is the focus of the story that he is telling us. And so I'm going to have you actually turn back to the first chapter of Luke, to Luke chapter 1, because there, at the beginning of the first book, Luke tells us what kind of book he's writing, and he tells us what the focus is going to be. So look with me again at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken 
to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So here we have the introduction to Luke's first book. And in this introduction, he is telling us the kind of book that he is writing, and he's telling us the things that he is writing about. And so the first thing I want us to, to notice in this is Luke's method. What kind of book is he writing? Well, he tells us plainly, he, he tells us unambiguously that he intends to write history. He is writing a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. He is not writing historical fiction. He is is not placing some fictional characters into a historical setting. He he is not writing myth. He's not writing uh, these these morality stories that will explain uh, God's relationship to man. That's not what he is doing. He is writing a historical narrative. He is giving an orderly account of the things that have been accomplished. Notice, that's where his process begins. It's a a four-step process, and it begins with the events themselves. There have been certain things that have been accomplished. There there are certain things that that have happened. These are events that have taken place in, in space and time. And there were eyewitnesses to those events. That's the the second step in the process. People saw these things. People experienced these things. They were there. And so there were eyewitnesses to these accounts. Certain people witnessed what happened. And now they are telling that story. They are delivering them to others. And so eyewitnesses are are telling their story. They are testifying to, to what they have seen. But Luke wasn't one of those eyewitnesses. What we'll see as the book of Acts unfolds that, that near the end of the story, he, he joins the narrative. He becomes one of the characters and he begins to, to speak in the first person plural. He begins to say that we did this or we did that. But for most of the story, Luke wasn't there. He wasn't one of the eyewitnesses. And so what does Luke do? He researches. Every historian can tell you about research. They can tell you about digging in. And we don't know exactly when Luke did this research, but, but most commentators think it's likely that, that while Paul was in, uh, in Judea in jail for more than two years, that he was in the area where he could talk to the eyewitnesses, he could do the research, he could, he could ask the questions, he could conduct the interviews. He had ample opportunity to, to look into, and he tells us that he has. He says, I have followed all things closely from the beginning. Doesn't mean he's been following them from the beginning. He wasn't there. He wasn't one of the eyewitnesses. But that's the language of research. That's the the language of investigation. He looked into these things. He has researched the story from beginning to end. He has talked to the eyewitnesses. He has read whatever documents they might have written down. And he is now recording what he has learned. That's the final step in the process. He He is writing an orderly account. Not necessarily a strictly chronological account, although there is a a general chronology to the unfolding. But he's writing an orderly account, an an account that can be understood, an account that that makes sense of all the things that have happened and, and puts it into a narrative form where we see the big picture of what has unfolded in space 
and time. That's the way historians do history. They understand that events have taken place. They, they understand that people saw those events. They experienced those events. And they research. They, they talk to the eyewitnesses. They, they look at the documents that have been written down. And then they put it together into an orderly account that might benefit others, someone maybe like this, Theophilus, or anyone else who might read the account. That's what Luke is doing. It is a historical process. And we can say that it gives all the signs of being a good historical process. There, there have been some throughout the years, especially beginning in the 18th and the 19th century, who said, well, maybe Luke was trying to write history, but he's not a very good historian. There have been those who have, who have suggested that, that his, his history is inherently unreliable, inaccurate. And of course, they assume this because things that we know as rational people, things we know don't happen, happen all the time in the pages. And it's very clear that Luke has a theological agenda, and so therefore he can't be writing good history. And so it has been simply assumed for the past 200 years that, that Luke's history is not all that great. It's simply a, a propaganda piece produced by the early church to, to support their agenda. But I want you to hear me say this morning that we have good reason to be skeptical of the scholar's skepticism. You see, there, there simply isn't any evidence that Luke's history is unreliable. In fact, all the evidence we do have points in the other direction. And in fact, the more evidence that we have collected over the years, the more that Luke's history has been Validated. The more we have seen that his, his history is, is actually good, time and again, when there was something we didn't know, and the scholars assume Luke must have gotten that wrong, as we make new discoveries, as we, as we learn new things about the ancient world, we, we begin to see, oh yes, actually Luke's picture of the first century is, is quite accurate. There are, of course, things we don't know. There are things, details we, we can't confirm, but where Luke's facts can be tested... They have been confirmed again and again and again. So much so that a, a professor at Oxford in the middle of the 20th century has put it this way. He says the historical framework is exact. In terms of time and place, the details are precise and correct. Luke is writing history, and he's good at it. He's writing an accurate history. He is a reliable, competent historian. But why does it matter? Why is it so important for us to see that Luke is writing reliable, believable history? Well, it seems that with respect to Luke's gospel, the, the importance of it being history is, is clear. Without the historical events of, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, there simply is no gospel. Unlike any other world religion, Christianity is founded upon historical facts. Things took place in space and time, and our hope is built upon that foundation. Jesus came in the flesh. He lived a life under the law of, of perfect obedience. Then he gave his life as the ransom for many. He died in our place. And three days later, he rose again, justified by the Father, victorious over death. 
to new life as the first fruits of the salvation that will be ours. Our hope is only as real as Jesus' resurrection. Our hope is, is tied intrinsically to, to the historical events that took place in the Gospel of Luke. And, and so it's fairly easy to see why it is important that Luke be history. Jesus tells, or Paul tells us that if these things concerning Jesus are not true, then our hope is vain, our, our faith is useless, and we are still in our sins. The historical reality of, of the Gospel of Luke is easy enough to see, but why does it matter that the book of Acts is history? Obviously, our, our, our hope is not tied to the events in the book of Acts in the same way that they're tied to the events in the Gospel. The gospel in the Gospel, Jesus dies. He, he, he rises again. He ascends back to the Father. Why then is the, the unfolding history in the book of Acts so important? Why does it matter that this book also is reliable history? I want to suggest to you that it is Important that we see Acts for what it is, that we, we see Acts as, as a, a book of history, as a historical account of the things that took place after Jesus' ascension. Because these events shape our understanding of the nature of the church. When you look at the church today, when you see it divided into to hundreds, if not thousands, of denominations, each with its own theological distinctive, each with its own particular traditions, when you see the church divided in the way that it is, it is easy for us to forget that there is one true apostolic church. We can begin to, to think that the church is, is shaped by human preference. We can begin to think that the, the church is what it is because this particular charismatic figure or this particular um, uh, leader wants it to be that way. And there are some who would claim that it's been that way from the beginning. That the divisions that we see today are, are really the way it's always been. You may have heard a, a book titled Lost Christianities. The author uses the plural on purpose. Lost Christianities, plural. He, he is claiming that there were many Christianities immediately after Jesus' death. He wouldn't give much credence to the idea that Jesus rose again. But immediately after Jesus' death, there were all sorts of human responses to Jesus' life and to Jesus' teaching. And over time, one particular strand of, of teaching took root. One particular strand took hold and, and became the dominant force. And as they say, the winners get to write the history. And so that particular strand is what was passed down. That particular response. But really, there were many responses. There were, there were many ways that humans could have gone responding to Jesus' death. And there's actually no way to disprove a conspiracy theory like that. Because any evidence that you give to the contrary, the, 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 the conspiracists just think, well, that's just proof that they won. 
But while you can't disprove it outright, you, you can say that there's no good reason to believe it. Because if Luke's gospel and if the, the book of Acts prove to be historically reliable, if they prove to be historically accurate again and again and again at all the points where they can be tested, and as we've already said they do, Luke is a good historian, then it calls the theory of lost Christianities into serious question. You see, Luke is telling us the true story of what happened after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's telling us the the true story of how the church grew after Jesus' ascension. It's not a church without problems. It's not even a church without divisions. Luke is is going to give us a, a very blunt picture of what the church was like in the first century. But it was one true apostolic church. And this tells us that there is a standard. There's a standard for the faith of the church. There's a a standard for the the practice of the church. There is a, a standard by which the church can be measured to be either a true church or not. When we want to assess the the health of of the present church, we ask, what did the apostolic church believe? Is our faith in line with what they taught? What did the apostolic church do? How did they live? Are our practices in accord with what we see in the book of Acts? Now let me offer a qualifier at this point. That doesn't mean that the contemporary church should look exactly like the church in Acts at every point. And and we're going to have to wrestle with that as we work our way through this book. There were, of course, cultural differences even in the first century where where Gentile churches didn't look exactly like Jewish churches. There were were cultural differences. There were were some things in the the early church that were provisional simply because it was a a young and, and new church. And there were some things that were foundational. They had apostles who were delivering the faith once for all to the saints. But once the foundation has been laid, you don't continue to lay the foundation again and again and again. At some point, you begin to build upon that foundation. And so there are reasons why the the contemporary church might not look exactly like the early church. But even with all of those qualifiers in mind, even though we know that we must expect some distance or some difference in form, we still come back to the truth that there is one apostolic church. And we should not expect to see differences of substance. The early church is a portrait for the contemporary church to see and to emulate and to aspire to. Yes, there will be differences, but this is the blueprint for what Christ's church is supposed to look like. This is the church that Jesus built. We don't get to define the church for ourselves. We we don't get to to decide that we're going to have a different mission or that we're going to adopt different values. This is the church that Jesus built. Just as he promised when he, when he 
responded to, to Peter's confession, upon this rock I will build my church. And this is the story of that construction process. This is the, church, this is the story of the church that Jesus built. Notice it again in the, in the first verse. He says, in, you'll have to turn back to Acts to see this actually. But notice it again. He says, in the first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The implication is that, that the story of Acts is going to be the story of what Jesus continued to do and to teach. You see, people sometimes argue about what the, the best title for this book is. It's been traditionally known as the Acts of the Apostles. But some have, have suggested that it might better be referred to as the Acts of the Holy Spirit, for it is the, the Holy Spirit who empowers everything that, that takes place. And there's something true about that. It's not wrong to call it the Acts of the Apostles. They are clearly the, the main characters. Peter and Paul are, are the main characters at work, and there are others as well uh, throughout the book. But they are always working in the power of the Spirit. And so there's something right about referring to this as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But we can go even one step further back. Because the Holy Spirit is sent by the Son. And so what we have here, according to Luke himself, are the acts of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit through the instrumentality of the apostles and the other disciples. This is the story of the church that Jesus built. And therefore, this is what the church is supposed to look like. If we want to know what the church is to be today, we go to the book of Acts. Now, we're sometimes nervous about doing that because there are things in the book of Acts that seem strange to us. There, there are things in the, the book of Acts that, that we don't see in the church today, and we, we wonder why that is. But we need to understand that this is our starting point. This is our blueprint. This is the portrait of the church that we are seeking to emulate. But seeing that this is the, the church that Jesus built, seeing that this is the, the story of Jesus' church, that doesn't only place an obligation upon us. It doesn't only give us a, a goal to aspire towards. It also gives us hope as we undertake that endeavor. Because again, this is the church that Jesus built. Just as the, the Gospel of Luke was the story of the things that were accomplished, the things that were accomplished in Christ, the book of Acts is the story of what Jesus continued to do after his Ascension. It is the, the story of the, the church that, that he built. And if this is the church that Jesus built, then we have hope for the church today. Because the instruments that he was using were people just like us, empowered by the same Spirit that is still ours today. Peter and, and Paul are, are heroes of the faith, and rightly so. But they are not heroes in and of themselves. They are not heroes because of their extraordinary humanity. 
They are heroes because they were instruments in the hands of an extraordinary God. It was the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ who built the church. And if He built this church in the first century, He can build this church today. We will see things in our study where we we grieve because the church is not what it should be. But we should grieve as those with hope because the Spirit is still at work. Jesus is still completing His good work and He will not fail to bring it to completion. He will not abandon His people. He will do the work that He set out to do. And He will build us into that living temple of living stones that bring glory to God the Father and bring good to His creation. You see, the story of what Jesus is continuing to do continues. And it will continue until that day when He comes again to bring to completion the work which He has begun. And because the history of the church is the history of Jesus' work, His ongoing work, His unfinished work. That is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in Your goodness. And we do pray that as we begin this study in this book, Father, that You would open our eyes to see Your church as You intend it to be. And that you would help us to see and to believe, Father, that we can be what you call us to be, not in our own strength or by our own designs, but in the power of your Spirit, sent in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. It's in his name that we pray and for his name's sake. Amen.